I was expecting a stable, mentally sane leadership. Bullshit. When they gave my dad the tour, first thing my dad came back and told me was, hey, on the bright side, you're not in jail. But on the downside, these rooms look just like my barracks when I was in Iraq. Just think of it as your first deployment. When I came in there, everybody was like staring at me in the boys' dorm. Mm -hmm. Like there was a huge window, like looking out into the courtyard. And then where I was walking in, I was walking into the courtyard. Everybody was just standing at the window. I already know what's happening here. campus of Freedom Village USA, an international ministry dedicated to reaching the teenagers of the United States and Canada. Welcome to Victory Today. My name is Margaret, and this is We Warn Them Freedom Village, an investigative mini-series unpacking what happened at Freedom Village USA through interviews from people who experienced it themselves. We will mention different forms of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse throughout this series, so please take care of yourself as you feel necessary. Those were the voices of Bryden and Weston, two kids that were both at the village around the same time as Wonder and Angel. Wonder mentioned that he could connect me to some of his friends who still lived around the area. So later in the year, Wonder, Maggie, and I took a road trip back upstate. We first went to Fredonia, New York, where Bryden was working as a welder. This was the first time that Boy Wonder had seen Bryden since they had left the village. They gave each other a big hug and then immediately started wrestling. It was the first time that I had seen such a strong sense of brotherhood that had been created from this place. Bryden's family is Christian and his dad was in the Navy. Growing up, he was constantly moving around, living in Texas, Oklahoma, California, and eventually New York. He arrived at the village in December of 2017 and left in January of 2019. I asked him about his first day there. <clears throat> nasty, really nasty. And uh, we walked through these doors and they had uh, Dante, Mr. Dante. He was sitting there and talking to this, uh, this other guy. I forgot. I only seen him one time. The other guy. But um, there was Frank out there, Hollywood. <laughs> Bro, I hated that kid from the second I got there. But he was out there, Hollywood. And they were like, you better be good, kid. This is what you'll be doing. Oh, like, dang. Okay. And you didn't know what that meant at the time? Nope. I had no clue. Mm. None at all. Also, as they kept yelling at the kid, and I was sitting there laughing because I was like, man, this kid's stupid as fuck. Just do what they're saying. He's just out there fucking hauling wood, and they're yelling at him. So I just thought, hey, wait, just do what they say. It ain't that hard. You're just walking in circles. Fuck. And, <clears throat> you know, later on, you find out it's a little bit more retarded than that. I hate mm -hmm. to use that word, but a lot more. You know, just the mental drainage. That place was insane. Angel had mentioned this mental fatigue as well. I asked them when it first began. First day. First official day. Mm. When I woke up to a bell. No one told me about the bell. It made me like jump, like sit up out of bed and be like, oh my god, what's going on? Like it made me think there's like an earthquake going on. The whole building shakes. And so it was scary. And then Elijah didn't even tell me I'm supposed to get up and go to devotions. Sitting there making his bed and getting dressed. He's brushing his teeth while he's doing it too. He's just sitting there. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm like, yo, what? Man? <laughs> yo, you need to get up. Get your devos done. Your devos? Devos. What are those? It's a little book. Every morning you go to the, next, you go to the one page and you write down what you thought about the verse of the day. How, it can, how you apply it to your life. So she just leaves the room and I'm like, what the heck? So I jump out of bed and I run to her and I'm following her and she goes in the 
the basement and they all just start reading a prayer and I'm like, we're up at 6 a.m. to read a prayer after a big giant bell. The first bell, you go to the lobby for, they take roll. Mm -hmm. And then you go back to your room and you get it all done. You have to clean your room, have your room spotless, and then go do your morning chore. We clean, we go to breakfast, and then while we're at breakfast- What do you guys clean? What are you cleaning? The dorms or? Um, we each get um, a certain chore to do. My first chore was uh, lawn, kitchen? Lawn, mom's kitchen? First thing was kitchen, then me and Parky put you on lawn. So kitchen, lawn, barn, kitchen, pastor's crew. Then barn again. Then barn again. It seemed like your level determined your chore. My girlfriend Maggie from the first episode, who is also a clinical therapist, helps me break it down as well. Yeah, I think it determined kind of like everything. Like it seems like the level system was a way of organizing all your whole kind of like life at this place into a hierarchy where like the higher level you are, it's not just like the chores you do are different, it's like what you can do with your time is different. The amount of freedom you have is different. If you're on a lower level, you're doing more work, but you're also like being publicly humiliated more often. You're being isolated. You're not allowed to talk to other people. And it's a way of incentivizing them, you know, to follow the rules. And they're visible. They're being published in public where everyone can see. Freedom Village used a level system to determine the daily tasks of students. The lowest level was no level, where you were mainly subjected to hauling wood. You can move up to A level, C level, E level, and then the top level, before becoming junior staff, was called Pastors Club. I was the highest level that I could be. I actually made it to a higher level than I was allowed to be, because you have to be there for X amount of years to make it to PCM. Um, How many years do you I have think, to be? I think it's one. Uh, you, have to be, you have to have been there over a year. But I mean, at the PCM. Could you describe what Pastor's crew was? Yeah, yeah, you cleaned his, his house pretty much. You mowed his, his lawn, you cut his trees, you cleaned his gutters, cleaned his house, you know. And this was a, this was a, um, a part of like your daily chores? Yeah. If you were in Pastor's Club, you would have to go. Yeah, yeah, but it was like an honor to get there. We, we sought it out so hard. Why? Because you were in, you were pastors' golden boys if you were up there. Mm. Like he'd sometimes take you out for a Burger King or something like that. Or when he had to go to the store, like the hardware store, you maybe got to ride with them and go inside. And that was all the outside human action interaction we really got. The kids were being told that they were going to be rehabilitated at this place and then to be sent back into society as better people. But while they were there, they were being forced to comply with a unique and singular level system, which will most likely make it more difficult for them to enter back into society. This could be understood as a tactic of institutionalization, being accustomed so firmly to the care and routine of an institution as to find independent life in the outside world difficult or unmanageable. It targets people who regularly can't fit into society. Oftentimes, this is just due to systematic oppression like racism or classism. They'll enter into places like prison or seminaries or other closed off institutions that set them apart from the rest of society with the intention of eventually returning back to society as better people. But what it actually does is gets them used to a closed off way of life. In this case, the kids are working all the time to grow in a curated level system specific to Freedom Village for survival. If you don't comply, you're constantly being punished or shamed. I found it interesting that you could only get on Pastors Club the highest level if you stayed for over a year. That doesn't really incentivize you to leave the program. If you spent a whole year being forced to acclimate to this kind of life, why would you want to leave to start all over again in the regular world? I agree with that, that like these kids here are not being taught skills that are gonna help them thrive in the regular world. Like they're being trained in skills, life skills that are only helpful to them inside of this institution. And they're also, I feel like a deeper point of this is they're getting good at figuring out how to please the people who are deciding 
their level system and their punishment. They're getting good at manipulation. They're getting good at cutting off themselves from their own emotional needs so that they're more capable of conforming into this system. They're getting good at ignoring their bodies, which are signaling to them that they're in pain and they need to like stop hauling wood and go inside and get warm. And in order to like carry out this punishment system, they need to learn how to cut that off from themselves. And none of that stuff is gonna help them live a healthy, happy life in the regular world. I wondered what would happen if you tried advocating for yourself. One time, I was in my bedroom and I was on no level and I was laying on the ground staring at the ceiling and I had like been hauling for like weeks and weeks and then um, I just sit up and then all of a sudden my neck is stuck and I can't move it and I have I don't know if they knew or not that I had scoliosis, but now I'm stuck here and I'm crying and I'm screaming down the hall. I'm like, can I come out of my room, please? Please, please, can I come out of my room? I can't move my neck. No one is answering. And so I just leave and I walk out of my room and I go all the way down to Amber's room. I was like, Amber, please, can we do something? I can't move my neck, look. And I was going like that. And then she was like, Come on, we're going to New York. She was really mad. She was like, they should not make you haul if you have scoliosis because they should have known something bad was going to happen. And then we go all the way to New Admin. I'm like, Miss Amy, look, I can't move my neck. And then she sits me down. She's like, okay, stay in here. I'll go talk to Miss Ginger. And then we go up to Miss Ginger. And Miss Ginger is like mad at me. And I'm like, I can't help it. Like, you're the one that's like giving me this hauling. And then she's like, does it feel like a stabbing feeling or a pinching feeling and I'm like I don't know it just hurts and then she starts screaming at me you have to tell me and I'm like I don't know like I'm sobbing in tears and I'm like look I can't turn my neck it feels like a pinch I guess I don't know can you please just do something and this Amy takes me to the hospital then they were like oh you have to go to the emergency room because we're not here right now and then we got x-rays for me and then um we went to Walmart after to get heating packs or something and then you had to go to walmart to get the heating packs they didn't have yeah. them there no but i still had a haul because you can't just like get up and not do it you're on a level for a reason to them so if you say you just didn't get out of bed one morning then i did that before when i was like actually trying to get kicked out and i wouldn't do anything i wouldn't listen to them um, instead of going to Halloween, I stayed in Beyonce's room. Me and Beyonce were super, super close at the time. And then um, they were telling me to get out and I was like, no. And I, they were trying to um, drag the bed I was sitting on. And so I went underneath the bed and I started sitting underneath the bed. I was like, drag me now. Then Miss um, Anna, she's the one I hate, she came in and just started like screaming at me and screaming at me. And then um, I think at like some point I got up and went in the hallway cause she told me to come out or something like that. And then she went outside and came back in and she just threw a piece of wood on me and I just held it. And then she was like, go haul, go haul. And then she left and then Jesse was like, okay, come on, let's go haul now. And then I was just holding the wood and I just sat down and then put it down and then, oh, then I slept in the hallway that night with a lamp on me because um, they're like, okay, if she doesn't want to listen, then you're sleeping here tonight. You can't get up. You can't go to your room. You can't shower. You can't. They were like, you have to sleep in the hallway. So I slept in the hallway, but they told me, they told Amber that they had to shine a lamp in my face the whole night. So that's what they did. But I put a blindfold on <laughs> so I could sleep. I was genuinely shocked at the torture tactic being used to punish Angel especially since they knew that she had scoliosis. What did they think was going to happen? And didn't they have the simplest of medical equipment like ice packs on hand? However, if that hadn't been enough, Pastor Brothers decided to do a sermon on her the next morning. Called it Angel's Dreamboat. That's the title of the sermon that he called it. And, and this then, is in front of all the kids. Yeah, in front of the boys and girls, in front of the staff too. And, um... I was like, oh my god. It was like, there was this boat called Angel's Dream Boat, and it was next to the um, the, sh the uh, dock, and it was tied onto the dock, but it wasn't tied correctly. 
And because it was tied, it was tied incorrectly. Um, when the wind came, it ripped the whole dock off, and the boat went missing, or something like that. It was something like he made it super long. His sermons are like forty minutes long, but that's as like much as I can remember. It basically saying because it wasn't tied right, because I wasn't like doing what I'm supposed to do, everything's gonna like go wrong, and then you know that's what he was trying to say. So I was like, I don't really care. But then I told my mom, and I was like, yeah, he did a sermon on me, and she thought it was cool. And, and I never told her about how I had to sleep in the hallway with a light in my face. She still doesn't know that. I never told her. Because, I don't know, I just feel like... Not that she wouldn't care, but she already, like, is sad enough that I had to go there. Because she knows that it, like, hurt me a lot. So now whenever I bring it up, it's just fun times I had there. Yeah. This is straight up bullying. He was using his authority to demean someone in an already vulnerable situation with very little compassion. I can see how his infinite power over these kids could inspire him to write personally amusing sermons. Did he have a sense of humor? Pastor? Yeah. Yeah, if you if you think fucking... Calling a girl a slut. Calling a girl a slut or body shaming or <laughs> fucking telling us we're going to hell is funny. I mean, then yeah, he, he was hilarious. Uh, dude, that motherfucker, he walked into chapel, I'll never forget it. He walked into chapel, and he was already, he started speaking on a, some kind of a sermon. And then he walked up behind me and cocked back, and he had this, he had a ring on his ring, or his uh, ring finger on his right hand. Cocked back, it was his college ring. And he smacked me in the head. And it, uh, I thought it was because of what me and Tara did, that, you know, we got caught. And we weren't caught yet, but, uh... Caught. Caught because we were passing notes. Uh, were you guys I, flirting with each other? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was more like, you know, two kids talking about how they're going to live a fairy tale. You know, mm -hmm. talking about how we're going to run away and shit. Um, it was it was pretty <laughs> cool. It was, it was a nice relief from the place, honestly. I always look forward every morning to go to school and checking the little crevice on my on my desk. We just kept it going every single day. There was there was something new. I think I said we'd send little drawings sometimes, and then um, I kept or I told one person. First thing he does with the information is he goes and snitches on me to go, to go get people or go get staff to like him. His biggest thing I felt like was to pick out. People that staff liked and then make them look like shit so he'd look the best. And that's what happened. I was up there in the levels. I was doing good. And ratted me out. I wanted to beat the living shit out of him. I wanted to go in his room and beat him. You know, I felt like I finally had a relief from this place. And you just took it away. And I, I honestly... I had hate in my in my heart. I really did. Mm. I went, Brian had to stop me a couple of times from going in his room. Mm -hmm. Like he was like, "No, no, Brian, it's not worth it." So every morning he read off everyone's write up in front of everybody's shit. So like, if it was a girl, let's say they didn't clean, they didn't do their hair properly that morning, he'd read it off, and he'd be like, "Yeah, such and such, this is one." Uh, you have no structure in your life. This is why a guy will never love you for who you are and stuff like that. What did he did? What did he say to you? To me? At a, when he at, found at out. A, yeah, at that time. Or he was pissed. Way. He was pissed. Honestly, um, he he had threatened. He he said, "I've had enough. You're going home." And I really thought I was going home. I was pretty much going nowhere. I would never grow in the program again. And he wanted me to stay on no level as like an example because his grandson liked her and they dated for a little bit. And that's a whole nother story. She didn't get it as bad as I did. He he was, I'm calling, I'm calling your, your parents, you're going home. And then he, he went off and he was like, told everybody why he thought I was there. What did he say? He told, he told everybody, he doesn't know how to keep his hands to himself. He likes to touch girls and all this stuff. And he, he was pretty much sex shaming me, trying to say that I am a rapist. That's pretty much what he was trying to say. And he, tr 
Dude, I, I never wanted to get up and punch an old man so hard in my life because I have little sisters. I have baby sisters. I have an older sister. And he just kept going. He was like, you know where he's going after here? He's going to jail. He has no life. He will never be anyone. And then he went on to shame and tar, calling her a slut and a whore. And he and then he went on to the majority and was like, all these girls over here are dirty. All these boys over here, they're liars. And just went off. Earlier, we were talking about how people like Pastor were the ones handing out the punishments, right? They're the ones creating the level system. They're at the top of this hierarchical abuse. But I think it's important to notice that it is a hierarchy. It's not just one against them all, but they've created a system where if you're in the middle, you can pull people up or you can pull people down. And so you have these kids snitching. They're incentivized to, like you're incentivizing them to tear each other down. And I think that's what makes it successful. That's why you don't have to have someone watching these boys 24-7 because... They're policing each other for you. Right. Yeah. They're being forced to take part in the abuse. Like, they're abusing each other. Like, the kids also monitor each other when they're on the woodpile. I mean, I wanted to talk about, like, the sexual dynamics. The dynamics around sex that are, like, going on here. Because... I mean, something that I've noticed is that, from what multiple people have said, that Fletcher Brothers in the chapel, when he would talk about women, it was always about, like, whether or not a man is ever going to love you. Even in that example Bryden just gave, he's like, you didn't do your hair right this morning. This is why you have no structure in your life. This is why a man will never love you for who you are. Or, like, we have other clips of him saying about girls, like, why would a man want a used up thing like you if it was a girl who had been doing sex work or something before she went in there? So it's like, I don't know, that already is weird to me. Like, why is he taking this angle with these teenage girls, these children, you know, like making everything about, will a man love you later on in your life? And kind of setting up this weird like sexual dynamic already but then on the flip side while they're actually in the program they're literally not allowed to look at the opposite sex right there's the six inch rule where you can't even get six inches from anybody i think it's just so unbalanced because right. there's no they're not allowing kids to ask questions and they're not really facilitating any healthy dialogue mm. it's all lecturing and like shaming and punishing like this is all just instilling fear and shame around sex and sexuality and sexual expression and that lasts that doesn't leave when you get out of there right the last person we met on the trip upstate was weston he was living with his parents in syracuse new york and unlike most of the people we met with he was coming from an upper middle class home it diversified my understanding of the demographic of who they were targeting. However, his parents had also heard about the program through a recommendation of another Christian family. I'm not quite sure if the parents knew why we had actually come, so Weston decided to set us up in the garage. It was night by the time we arrived, and we all sat in a circle with interchanging low lights playing the whole time. Did you ever get sick? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, throwing up? Yeah. From the food? Yeah. Like, just a, a first wreck. month there, I fucking was, like, deathly sick for, like, three weeks. Like, every day you yeah. threw up? Yeah. And I was just, like, fucking dead. The drinks and the, like, bag chips were 100% fucking expired. How did they respond to that when you were... They were just, like... Here's some ibuprofen. <laughs> and literally, literally, it told me that. And they honestly, sometimes they didn't even give me that. They just would be like, "All right, you can go sleep for the rest of the day." And then the next day, they'd be like, "All right, you're fine." Like, no, I'm not. <laughs> Clearly, but nah, that was fucked. Did you ever say like, "Hey, maybe it's the food," or you didn't? Nah, I didn't even want to like push my limits. There was a lack of predictability when it came to punishments. Weston describes how he would maneuver around this. How do you think they got, so the kids that like 
that like reported to the staff secretly? How did they like get them to? Did they like bribe them with things or like give them extra privileges? Level or up, level up. He, that, he doesn't know about that. Well, that I do know about. They did you that. Do? They did that to me once. No fucking way. But I didn't take it. So. They did that to you? They tried, but I didn't wow. do that shit. Nope. I know right. Well, let me guess. Level up, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's the only way. They were trying to like. How did they approach you with it? What did they? They were like, so uh, you got any like dirt on so and so? I'd be like, uh, no. They'd be like, uh, what if we raise your level like a couple levels, get longer visits, fucking go off campus longer, fucking what else? Trying to think of the last thing. Oh, and like, sometimes like if you were a dickhead about it, like if you said no, like being a dickhead, they'd be like, all right, then we're gonna demote your level and give you a write up for some shit. Because you said no to- Yeah. No, yeah, no to making some bullshit excuse for them to dirt on somebody. So you you didn't- wanted to, you, you said you, like you weren't gonna say anything oh yeah yeah cause fucking that would just ruin the reputation of myself in the dorm and none of the guys would like fuck with me or anything Everybody moved and that was basic that was basically like the whole motive of everything like you had to stick as a pack like if you're the odd one out you're fucked basically really cause everybody just like dogged on you, fucking, like, made fun of you and shit, like... Sounds like prison. Yeah. But it wasn't just behavior that decided who was assigned no level. Do you think they treated you different based off of where you're from? Oh, yeah. And or the color of your skin? 100%. They were just, like, confederate-ish. Okay. But I only got, like... Three days. I got like and he got um, like a um, like I don't even know six months ago. six. Oh yeah, because oh so oh so yeah. you got three days and he got six months. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. Pastor hated me. Yeah. Angel also picked up on a racist incident that happened in chapel. There was this boy named Jalen. He was super dark skinned and um, I think he was there for like drinking or you know like smoking that anyone any other teenager would do. And then um, he tells Jalen to get up, like, in front and um, stand with him. And then he's like, tell me, Jalen, do you go up to your friends and then say, hey, N-word? And he just said it straight out. And I, w- I was looking at everybody to see if anyone was going to say something, and no one said anything. And then he was just talking to Jalen like that, and I was like, what the hell? I was like, somebody say something. Somebody say something but no one ever did. And so he just sat back down and then chapel finished and everything just went back to normal. And it was weird. But then I heard this. Now he used to twist things in the Bible to like justify, like I remember he wouldn't let, like if you were uh, a white guy, like you couldn't talk to a black girl and vice versa because the Bible says you're not supposed to be on equal yoke. That was the voice of Tim, a survivor who reached out to me when I was upstate with the boys. He describes what was called the paper bag test. Apparently, you could only attain dating permission if you stayed for a long time on a high level or became staff. Essentially, they used the color of a paper bag to control who could date each other. So the darker kids could date each other and the lighter kids could date each other, but you couldn't date interracially. My friend from 1984 describes her experience. For my specific situation when I I was still in the program and this guy that I became friends with, really good friends with. In fact, we used to like write little notes to each other, really tiny, 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 roll it up, roll it up, and stick it in the pen. And just fling the pen like in the corner and like as he's passing, he would get the pen. And we did that for like months and no one ever got busted and we were like, and that's how we became really close. So when he graduated, so then he had asked permission to date me. And um, before they could give permission, they said they had to like see if I meet the requirements to date him. It was based on race. 
because according to the Bible, it says thou shall not be unequally yoked. And the way they interpreted that verse was like no um, race mixing. So to be exposed to this for the first time under the umbrella of Christianity was like, whoa, this is not real Christianity. Are you kidding me? This is not the Christianity I know, you know? They, they, they explained to me like, well, there are three races. There's a Caucasoid, Mongoloid, and Negroid, according to anthropology. I was like, okay. And they they needed to um, like check my background to see which um, which race I fall under. It wasn't like Chinese because I don't look Chinese, although you know we're considered Asian. It wasn't black, <laughs> although some people can see that I they think I'm black. <laughs> they don't know. And so they're like, okay, you're Caucasoid. I'm like, okay. Wow, I'm so lucky. Woohoo! <laughs> so they literally just deemed you as white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though you're not white. Oh, or well, according to anthropology. I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. So to me, that was like one of the first instances of being exposed to racism. <laughs> and um, I was so disgusted because in my gut, I knew this was wrong, you know? When I received the initial email from Tim, it read, Hello, my name is Tim and I've been waiting for something like this for 20 years. I was at Freedom Village from 1998 to 1999, about 13 months, and in those months I was exposed to things my young mind couldn't fully grasp. That place really screwed with my head. I've just recently got my life together. I'm from Maryland. Please call. I was terrible. It was disgusting. Like the dorms were all broke down. The showers were all rusty and old. Like the beds were all old and disgusting. I remember always being hungry because you know you could only the the, the higher the level you was, the more food you got. So no level you couldn't get any seconds, and you got the smallest portion. It was just like all donated old stuff from like they they would ride around grocery stores and get donated food. I mean it was crazy. Like uh, a lot of violence there. Uh, I can remember, uh, I'm sorry, it's my son. I, uh, I can remember a couple of times where, like, I think I posted on a page at one time where Mr. Kilroy, and, and, and I loved Mr. Kilroy, you know, but he just was in no position to be working, you know, with, with children and stuff like that. I remember when he, you know, he would horseplay and, like, he'd have us, like, you know, he'd be full two of us in the office and be like, hey, you guys go ahead and, like, you know, fight it out and, and let's see who wins stuff like that and but, but well, the one incident I, I recall vague uh, I mean not vaguely really with him is when he like he had there was like this 11 year old 12 year old kid there he couldn't weigh more than 80 pounds and um, he had kicked his teeth out and like I remember like because he would always give us these speeches before we would like you know go to eat or go to church or something like that and he was like well you know you guys horseplay with me don't don't get upset when, you know, something like this happens as opposed to like, you know, I'm sorry that I kicked this kid who I outweighed by 200 pounds teeth out. Mm. You know, like he just, he spun it like it was on us because we horseplay with him too much. And Tim was right. He was spinning in a way that protects him from taking accountability. I later came to find out that most of the staff members did not receive background checks and were oftentimes alumni from the program itself. I came across a website called HealOnline.org, which tracks the status of employees at different private residential homes for young people. According to their database, none of the staff at Freedom Village were licensed mental health counselors. Not only that they weren't licensed mental health counselors, like, were they, did they have any experience at all? Did they have any qualifications? I mean, I think these were just like random. And I want to say, we don't have to like put this in, but um, I feel like this is an interesting story that we, while we were in the process of doing all the research for this project, we went to a diner one morning that was up the road from where Freedom Village used to be. And we were asking around in the diner, like, hey, do you guys remember Freedom Village? Did you like have any experiences with it? And a guy sitting at the bar turned around and he was like, oh yeah, I almost took a job there. And we were like, what do you mean? And he said he saw like an advertisement for a job as like a staff member at the village. But he ended up turning it down and we're like, so why did you turn it down? And he's like, because what they basically offered was no, no pay, but that you could just come live on the property for free. 
Like essentially you get free room and board in exchange for like being a staff member here. And that was it. And this was like open to anyone, you know, like no background check, no, no nothing. It's like being a prison guard, but you have to live at the prison, prison and you don't get paid. And not only that, but it's like who realistically thinking like what kind of adult person would be attracted to that offer? You know what I mean? Mm. Like probably someone who's not in the best situation in their life, right? And on top of that, the program wasn't even accredited. This is my friend from 1984 again. Did you end up graduating from the yeah. program? Uh-huh. And did, did they get your, your high school diploma? Well, according to the universities, colleges here in New York City, it wasn't accredited. So I had to go back and get my GED. But this was even after I had gone to college. I had gone to um, Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. And I ended up getting kicked out of there. <laughs> anyway, it was a Bible college. So I came back home. When I came back home, I had to start all over again because my parents were like, well, I'm not fitted. I'm not paying that bill. Because <laughs> I wasn't going to get my, my credits transferred anyway unless I paid the bill. So I had to start all over again. And and then New York City was like, well, your high school diploma is unaccredited. So I had to go get my GD. <laughs> I was like, well, I just did some college. How do You know, so I was like... Whoa. New York City has different standards, obviously. Yeah, but yeah. also, like, you, that you didn't have that information, like, upon leaving Freedom Village, that this wasn't... Accredited, were, yeah. Yeah, were you thinking, like, this is my high school diploma? Yeah, well, I got into college. I did a semester and a half already. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Did you feel like you were learning then? No. Okay. That was, like, the worst part of Freedom Village. Academically, we were not... We did, it wasn't a good quality of education. I think it only worked for people who started in that kind of program. Mm. You know, like the, the, like the staff kids who started in that program from like, you know, five years old up, that's what they know. <laughs> so that's, you know, but it, I don't find it was a good quality of education. Mm, because... And I think that's what, um, that's one of the weaknesses of that program. Um, yeah, what made it not quality? Like, who could sit in a cubicle all day and learn? There was no sense of creativity, no sense of interaction. No, I mean, like, it's just, like, very rote. You go through these booklets, and you just keep on going. Mm. Th- to me, that's not a good form of education. That's not a good educational system. I still found it funny that Tim liked Mr. Kilroy. Even Wonder and Bryden and Weston talked fondly of some of the male staff in their dorm. Wrestling meant breaking the six-inch rule, physical intimacy, something that they all lacked. I think when you're in a traumatic situation like that, when you're mentally and emotionally exhausted all the time, you form bonds with who's ever within arm's reach. It doesn't matter who they are. But in an environment where violence is normalized and accountability is absent, the consequences of a typical interaction can be catastrophic. I asked Weston if he had ever gotten in any fights. Split somebody's head open, but that was, it wasn't really a fight. It was more of an accident because he like, this dude pants me. Yo, think fast. And I was like, what? I'm like, yo, there's no way you just did that, bro. He's like, right before he got into his doorway, I like, jolted forward and shoved and he lost his footing and slipped like this like lost his foot like that mm-hmm. and wham right into like the door frame and all the doors for the bedrooms were fucking fire escape doors like metal doors i like i walked away after i shoved him because he went into his room so i didn't even think like i fucked him up that bad so mm-hmm. i just thought he just slid and i was like that's what you get for fucking doing that shit Weston had chased down the guy that pantsed him and pushed him, not intending to do any real harm. But the kid slipped and ended up splitting his head open on a door frame. So I fucking walk over to him, put my hand on his head, like both hands, and I could feel that shit like spurting into my finger or into my hand, like palm. That shit was fucked. I was sitting there like, oh my God, I killed somebody. 
what the fuck? Like, this is you, this place's fault. And, like, so I was just like, I didn't even yell for anybody. Like, he just kept screaming. I was just shaking like this. Like, just like this. Like, not even trying. Shaking. My hands were soaked in blood still. I was just sitting there thinking of all the shit that I'm about to get into. Like, I'm looking at each of my fingers, and I'd see, like, an option, 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 option. I was just stuck. Yeah. I just, like... Yeah. I was just fucked. Like... Thinking about... How... The cops would come and shit, like... Just cause the... Head people at the place... Said that shit so much. So that was just an instant thought. So that just instantly just, like, shot me down. I was just in my corner, in my room. We all had started laughing, maybe out of nervousness, but once he started retelling that story, it became serious fast. What began as a funny dispute quickly became life-threatening to somebody, and Weston was now concerned about spending a lifetime in prison. Wonder also describes how he remembers the event school's fault. I mean, the place's fault. Because if there was somebody in the dorm, Justin wouldn't have pantsed him. And he wouldn't have got pushed into a door frame. You see what I'm saying? See how they set shit up? Mm. They set shit up on purpose because they know that trouble teen shit. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, like my whole purpose, I'm not gonna lie, my whole purpose wasn't even, like, saving this kid Justin. It was making sure he doesn't go to jail. I cared more about him. I was like, nah, this kid's not about to go to jail. Like, you know. So they were setting you up to get into, like, worse trouble in your life? Yeah, yeah. no, yeah, pretty yeah, much. Basically. Like, they were setting you up to, like, go into, like, a further level of the criminal justice Oh, yeah, they system. were. Yeah. They were setting you up to go further into the system. And what happens when someone really feels like they don't have a way out? It was when I, like, realized that I was just stuck. There? Yeah. Like, I was, there's nothing I could do. Like, I couldn't leave because they'd call the cops and the cops would bring me right back because they have custody of me. Like, I just wasn't thinking straight and... Because we did a night chapel in our, like, hallway or, like, like devotions or some shit. Night devotions. Mm -hmm. Where everybody just, like, said some shit Mm -hmm. about, like, what their day was like or whatever. And then after that, I went into my room and shut my door and fucking was just laying in my bed with a belt in my hand. Fucking, like, already tied up and shit. Yeah, and, like, I was already doing it. Yep. Like, I blacked out multiple times before he came in. Like, he... Like, he came in probably five minutes after I started, like, actually doing it. But, like, I blacked out multiple times. Because I was, like, actually trying. I think I fucked my throat up because of it. Like, while I was there, I think it's fine now, but... Like, while I was there, I fucked my throat up because of that. Because the belt was, like, digging into my neck. Did anyone ever find out about that? Mm, No, besides Isaiah. Perky, man. Well, yeah. But Perky and me kept it under wraps because... God only knows what they would have done to him if they found out. They would have punished you? If... Oh, no, they wouldn't have punished him. They would have sent him right to a mental hospital. Yeah, yeah. With no hesitation. Yeah, they did with that with Isaiah. They, they did that with Isaiah. They put, him, they, they put him in a street jacket and sent him out the door. Beyond the childish game that caused the violence, I think Weston was beginning to understand on a deeper level that he was powerless within this system. Rather than preparing him to live a better life in the outside world, he's being fear-mongered into either following the strict, absurd rules of Freedom Village or being forced into another facility. Whether consciously or not, these kids understood they were trapped. On our journey upstate, this was the first time Boy Wonder had seen his friends since he left. And in the case of Angel, due to the gender segregation, it was the first time he had actually talked to her in person. 
going into seeing Angel, like, it wasn't like I didn't want to see her. Like, I definitely wanted to see Angel. I definitely wanted to see how she was doing. But as soon as I seen her, all I heard was like Jeremy Fletcher. Six inch rule, can't talk to girls, two weeks in Oval, three weeks in Oval. And I just You heard to, their voice yeah, in your head? Yeah, and I just had to like suppress it. Like, I was just like, nah, dude, <laughs> not today. It was just a really weird day. It's like, a, it's a lot to take in. Like, these are the days like, I like don't want to relive. <laughs> like, these are the perfect example of the days I don't want to relive. Like, I don't ever want to feel like this. Like, if I, I can't even explain to you how it feels. Like, it feels like somebody, like, punching you in the chest and grabbing, like, your soul and just squeezing it. Like, and you, like, just can't call for help. And it sucks. Like, it sucks. Like, I, like, it was like I was being backed into a corner. And it was like, okay. This is exactly what we were talking about before with institutionalization. Tim told me that adjusting to prison wasn't really that hard after having been conditioned by Freedom Village. Your way of relating to people becomes way more intense through the violence, secret flirting, and constantly being in fear. About three months after I left there, I had started uh, shooting heroin and cocaine and uh, been in and out of prison for the past 20 years. Like I think I mentioned in the email, I just recently got my life together. I was son down a wife. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I asked him how it affected him after. I didn't want to hear anything to do with God. Anything that had anything to do with God, I, I immediately didn't want to hear. Um, I, mean, I, t- I turned to drugs and alcohol because I didn't feel normal. Like, you know, my own skin, you know, that, that using those allowed me to feel normal. Um, you know, that was a problem that I had before I went to Freedom Village. They did nothing to do to help change or whatever. It just made it way worse when I got out because that made place, that place confused me. I was young. I didn't, you know, they, they told us a lot of weird, crazy things there, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a direct result. I struggled with addiction my entire life. I don't know. I'm just glad a lot of this stuff's coming to light because, like, I mean, it was, it was one of the worst years of my life when I was a kid, and, and who knows how my life would have turned out. If I went there, I wondered that a lot. Like, would I have went down the same path I went down if I hadn't gone to this place for a year? For what? And just the anger, like, it just being... Because, I mean, those guys would, like, you know, they put you on blast in front of everyone in the program just to make it me feel about, you know a centimeter big by like singling out thing uh, about me and stuff like that and like insane in front of everybody. I remember one of the boys telling me that one of the biggest lessons he learned from the village was how to cry in silence. Without communication to the outside world, all they really had was each other. My, my best friend, my sister, and like, to me, Kelly was my sister, and to me, Amber was my mom, you know, because it was like you kind of have to make your own family in there. Mm-hmm. I remember, oh my gosh, I was so like, what's that? Not like, it's like kind of like unnurtured, because like I was in there. Amber, it sounds so dumb, but she used to hold me and like, like rub my back like a baby because of how like homesick I, I would just. I would like lay in her lap and just cry. And she would treat me like a baby and it would actually comfort me. And it felt, it feels weird that she had to treat me like a baby for me to be happy again. It felt like sick. And then, yeah, she really was like my mom there. She was like, you just need to be coddled. Like, that's what you're missing, man. And I was like, yeah, that is what I'm missing. It was risky because we weren't even, like, I wasn't supposed to even be touching Amber. There's a relief to be six inches apart from anyone at all times. And, um, we would just never get caught, or either we never got caught, or nobody ever cared because I was 13 and I kind of needed it in their eyes. And just like teenagers have the natural instinct to fight, they also have the one to love and care for each other when no one else does. They're gone. That was the only family I had there. Yeah. I didn't even have my real family while I was there. And then they're just gone. I'm not gonna lie, when I left, I actually cried for Brian and Weston. Yeah, I missed you too. I cried for Brian. Weston just broke down in tears when I left. 
I cried when I was in the car. I cried for Brian Wilson because I was like, oh shit, I even left my brother. That shit. I felt terrible. They sang a song when I was leaving. They <laughs> they chased me down the road. Hang on. When my dad came and picked me up, they chased me down the fucking road, singing me a song. When you were leaving? Yeah, it was pretty cool. I asked Bryden if there was anything else he'd like to share. Don't ever trust the brothers. Don't ever send your kids to a place like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And don't ever just go off a hunch that it's religious. Just because it says that it's religious. Goddamn right. The humiliation from brothers bullying on top of the religious indoctrination doesn't leave your head once you're out of the physical place. The normalization of violence, lack of medical services, racism, and forced isolation all show that this place was not a safe place for kids. Ultimately, it was priming them for an institutionalized life. There is a sociological term called the school-to-prison pipeline, which refers to policies and practices that directly or indirectly push students out of school and on a pathway to prison. Youth in Freedom Village did not receive a valid high school diploma, only a certificate from the Christian program PACES, if that. They weren't prepping kids to go into higher education. They weren't giving them the resources to enter back into the outside world. They weren't even recognizing the past traumas that these kids had. In cases like Tim, prison was a direct result. In July of 2019, Freedom Village shut down its operation on their New York property. But it wasn't because of unsafe conditions. It was because they were more than $3 million in debt and a bankruptcy judge rejected its plan for protection from creditors. They began making plans to move to South Carolina. But before I go into where they are now, we need to talk about where they came from. How did this place get started? Who funds it? And how did it remain open and undisturbed for nearly 40 years? On the next episode of We Warn Them Freedom Village. So many politicians are embedded in this. They own stock in it, own stock in children. The thing that blew my mind is they they sell you kids like adopt-a-teens. You know, they sell these kids off. Oh, these kids have nobody. They have nothing. My parents are paying $2,500 a month. See, I felt like he pimped us out because you even think about, like, he's had all these political connections that could get him into all these events and things. And then he gets to hang out with the boys in the dorm and be honorary staff. So he gets to pick which boys he gets to hang out with. It's just is really creepy. This podcast was created by myself with the help of Stefan Sepko, Carlo Soriano, and Mackie Galen. All original music by Kay Porcelain, Gucci Silica, and Eleven. Check out the links below to follow them. If you want to learn more about the troubled teen industry, please go to wewarnthem.org or follow at wewarnthem on any social media channel. 